This is the SFF Audio Podcast. I'm Scott. And this is Jesse. And this is Rick Jackson from Wonder Publishing Group. And Greg Marguerite from LibriVox.org. And I'm Jerry Stearns of Sound Effects uh, Radio in Minneapolis and the Great Northern Audio Theater. And I'm Julie from Forgotten Classics Podcast. Nice to have you folks. Yeah, thank you for coming. Thanks. Thank you. It's crowded in here. (laughs) (laughs) No, scoot over. Yeah, we need a bigger closet. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Watch those oh, elbows. We're all we're all here today to discuss uh, Robert Sheckley and his book, The Status Civilization. 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 Civil- what did I say? The status and then blank. Oh, civilization. <laughs> How's that? Oh, maybe you're just giving it emphasis. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was a dramatic pause. The status well, civilization. So mm-hmm. I liked it. Any other opinions? <laughs> I, was I, didn't like it. I didn't like it very much. No. Oh, Ooh, really? Holy cow! I liked it a lot. I liked that the fact that every time I thought it was so predictable, it switched on me, and it did it a lot. Yeah, it did. Yeah, well, yeah. all of his stuff is like that, really. Um, but uh, Scott, I'm interested in what what you didn't like about it. Was it primarily the way it ended? Um, no. In fact, the ending was probably uh, the better part for me. Um, the uh, the reason that I wasn't too fond of it is because I felt like. Um, there was a whole lot of things that didn't turn into anything. And then mm. there was also a uh, a whole lot of roadblocks that this character had to go through that, um, to me, it was like, oh, boy, you know. Uh, they kept saying, you know, you will never survive this thing, right? And then he pulls a fuse out of a robot and survives, you know. <laughs> I guess maybe the solutions were really easy, um, but it, it didn't seem to me that... Uh, it was hard enough, you know, when the, when they, the build-up, the payoff wasn't as good as the build-up was for each of his dangers that he went through, kind of in I rapid think succession that, there. I think there are some uh, things he chooses to emphasize and some things he just doesn't really care about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, like, when he gets to leave, we'll, we'll go, someone can do the summary of the plot, but when he mm-hmm. leaves, like, Omega to go to Earth and he, like, gets on the spaceship, it, it all kind of happens easily for him, you know? Mm-hmm. And but the character's like, always worried about this stuff. I mean, he had he wasn't really as smart as he could have been. I mean, he had to have a lot of help along the way. And even on the ship, he was constantly worried, but he didn't know what he was going to do. And, oh, wow, did I get lucky. So um, there was that tension from inside the character, I felt. If he hadn't had that woman helping him, he would have been dead early. <laughs> yeah, he'd have been dead that's a common theme, uh, but I, I think with Julie's they, comments or just uh... no, no, the, <laughs> no, not the, the necessity woman. of a woman. Um, no, in Sheckley? Yeah, no, it, it, it just in general in, okay. in in most science fiction. But I, I think that the scope of the vehicle of the story uh, was so wide. When you have a scope that 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 is that wide, you can't help but leave a bunch of loose ends hanging because you're really trying to push three or four primary uh, philosophical ideas across. And um, you think of funny stuff along the way and you toss it in there. But uh, a lot of times things that have a a scope that that is this wide, either what you have to do is not end it, a la 
Doctor Who, which never ends, but the, the vehicle is so wide, you can go anywhere, anytime, any space, any time, you know. Um, but or or you or you do end it, and people feel a a letdown, like in mm-hmm. the Prisoner, the original Prisoner with Patrick McGowan. Um, the ending lets a lot of people down because it doesn't have the the snap of the of the mechanic mechanics of each episode that went before it. So if you come up with a really good vehicle and I've heard you guys talking about like River World and stuff like that. And don't get me started on what sci fi did to it twice. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> really. But, but again, there's another really good vehicle and uh, just the idea, the premise. And, and so the premise here was so difficult to get across um, that, that, that the book itself, in general, when you think about it, might be a letdown. But, you know, what was interesting for this to me was I have to advertise for somebody to listen to these stories when I record them. And the original description of the story that I wrote, I realized I can't get all of this in here. I can't put this entire premise into one paragraph. Um, and so I actually put it up and was trying to get somebody to proof listen it. And I couldn't get anybody. So I rewrote the description in an effort to try and suck other people in. But it was too subtle for me to summarize in, you know, 150 words. Have you got that description handy? If not, um, maybe it's a time now to read it. Well, actually, what happened was the the MC, the the guy who was responsible for putting it up, the woman actually, um, uh, went with the original description. Um, And it's here somewhere. I've got it, if you don't. Uh, Go ahead. Uh, wakes without memories just before being deposited on Omega, a planet for criminals where the average life expectancy is three years. He's listed as a murderer and released into the illicit society as a peon, the lowest class imaginable. A mysterious girl gives him a weapon that starts him on his path to status, a path that requires constant brutality. But it must become... But it must be born if our hero is to discover the reason for his imprisonment imprisonment, a reason that pits him against himself and involves the sardonically similar but devoutly different creeds of Omega and Earth. The Status Civilization was first published as Omega, blah, 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 blah. And so, that's the one that didn't get a proof oh. listener right away. That's the first one. Um, I, don't, I don't even have the second one anymore, but I, I pepped it up trying to get somebody to say, come on, listen to this. Um, yeah, but, but, I can't believe you didn't have any binders. Well, I have... There's a lot of people that like to proof listen my stuff, and and a, a woman named Betty herself usually comes out of the woodwork to help me on these things. But um, she's, you know, the point here was that that the vehicle was so wide that it was impossible for me to write a summary that could hook somebody in. You, now, what, some things that you've just been talking about is that the vehicle is very wide, and yet we've been talking a little while ago about all of those. Um, uh, problems that he had to solve along the way mm-hmm. and those all seemed like fairly in some ways fairly mundane kind of things i mean you know f- fighting a uh, fighting robots and uh various kinds of wild animals which just because he hadn't seen them didn't mean they just weren't ordinary wild animals uh, right. so in yeah, a way that's kind of those kind of um dilemmas he had to solve were kind of small and pasted on a really huge canvas right and that's what i mean what it isn't is deep it's wide but it's not deep so it's like you can go to a ice cream store and you can buy one thing but there's 500 flavors that's wide (laughs) 
Okay, a recipe is deep because you can only do one thing at every step, and there are many steps. So, so this is a very wide vehicle, but it's not very deep. Yeah, it made me. It made me think of the Harry Harrison uh, Death World yes, trilogy. Yes, very similar in in mm-hmm. its. Yeah. Although the, even that is love. much more more deep. Uh, well, only it's one because they're books. He yeah. wrote a novella. If he'd, have, I was thinking, if he'd have written a, a longer work, he might have been able to do that same thing with it. This yeah. is about my favorite length of book. You know, I like long, long, long short stories, and this is just about perfect. <laughs> Not long enough. No. <laughs> Like mm. a book. To be a book. What's well, that? Well, a book. I felt the novel <laughs> from um, like two schools of writing at the time. And it's definitely got that pulp fiction thing going with all the action and the adventure and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it also had like the social commentary element of like books like The Space Merchants and Preferred Risk and things like that. Sure does. It has a very similar plot structure to those two, um, Space Merchants, Preferred Risk, and Gladiator at Law, um, all those pole, Fred Pole things, because it has a guy who didn't, who, you know, who seems to be part of something, but suddenly is thrust into a, uh, uh, a problem he has to deal with, and then he finds the opposite, the rebel cause, and he ends up fighting with the rebel cause against the people he used to be for. Uh, that's that's a common theme in Fred Pohl's stuff, and this is a slight twist on it, but it's still a very common um, t- structure for the plot. It's uh, it most reminded me of uh, Donald Westlake's Anarch Chaos, which is um, mm-hmm. I think I've talked about it on the website before. It's a short novella that uh, set on a planet with no law, uh, chaos, and anarchy together to give the the name but the guy there in that case he he actually is a uh, hardened criminal and so he's going there so that he can make his fortune Um, whereas in this case we've got a guy who appears to be a hardened criminal but doesn't really have the sentiment for it i don't know if i believed that whole hardened criminal thing in there uh that that was hard for me to take even the whole idea of a Religion based on evil. <laughs> I thought that was one of the best part of the books. <laughs> it, it was hard for me to to uh, uh, stretch the uh, uh, disbelief to that. Yeah, and and that to me was just one of the pieces that I couldn't. I guess I didn't understand the point. I, I think that that one I can I can elucidate. Um, mm-hmm. uh, one of the one of the things I've heard uh, uh, read about this book is that it's supposed to be a satire. And uh, that Checkley is well known for being a satirist. And I think that that's probably putting it way too strongly because I don't think this is a satire of anything in particular. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, The Space Merchants is, is much more clearly a, you know, making fun of our society, whereas The Saddest Civilization is playing with sort of a, a very, a, a, a part of our society, but, you know, taking it to such ridiculous extremes that it's, it's uh, it's even less clear than than uh, a, a more straight laced satire, perhaps. But um, I think the opposite religion, you know, the the mandatory worship of the devil and the mandatory addiction to drugs, um, can be explained by um, the concept of uh, Nietzsche and um, 
he's he he says that Christianity is a religion of slaves. It has slave values because it was primarily brought about by slaves. It was propagated by slaves um, at first, and so they made their values in opposition to their masters. And and in that way, it overturns the traditional Roman values. So. Um, traditional Christian values are things like um, blessed are the meek. Well, Romans, they didn't think meekness was a good value. Mm-hmm. But their slaves were meek. You know, they shall inherit the earth. And because earth has a uh, a religion, presumably, we, we don't find out until later in the book what, whether they do or not, um, it is in opposition on Omega. Um, so they assume what the religion is like on earth and they overturn that and make it the opposite and in a religious uh, manner it is a forced opposition too yes yes yeah but i think that i mean the thing i got it from is that the same arguments can be used to support a religion regardless of his, its intent good or <laughs> evil it doesn't matter when you believe in magic you use the same magical arguments whether you're whether you're malevolent or benevolent yes and there uh i mean there their version of evil was, uh, I mean, we saw, we, we didn't spend much time being oppressed by the evil, right? We, we knew that there was potential, but, um, I mean, he moves up to status the first day, right? Gets out of, the, out of harm's yeah. way almost immediately. Almost by accident. It's true. Well, and also, I looked at it and just thought, well, this is all these people, they have no memory, they're told they're like this, and so they're say, they say, okay, we're going to live up to that to our yeah. fullest potential, which is everything is opposite. And he really, in addition to just having fun with it, which I kind of just, I didn't worry about loose ends, because I was like, oh, he's just having a good time here with this story. Then when it's, when you see what it is on Earth... In a sense, that evil evil uh, atmosphere that they're setting up is almost preferable, although oh, yeah. it's insanely illogical. But at least the people are living for themselves and trying to think and do all that, as opposed to it, it. Really, I was surprised at the end of the book when you saw what Earth was like. It was like an eerie, prescient echo of a lot of people now. <laughs> you know, um, instead of playing baseball, they're doing it on a computer screen, kind of thing. Yes, the um, sheep look up. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. just interesting, I thought. But um, yeah, there, there yeah, was an I, annoying. I, go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, I'm just going to say, I don't think you could read too much into the religion specifically as opposed to the whole civilization because he was just opposite everything. Yes. Yeah, I, I think the dualism was definitely, it hit you over the head with a hammer regarding, you know, <laughs> yeah. the, the con. But I think the point was that removing contrasts makes you ignorant. Both sides had removed contrasts. Good mm-hmm. got rid of evil, so they mm-hmm. didn't know what good was anymore. Evil got rid of good, so they didn't know what good was. And so, you know, if you don't, it's it's a yin yang thing. And so, how can you 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 uh, avoid falling into a, a Cartesian dualistic philosophy? There, it, I mean, it's all. Although, if they all had this programming, if we're, I, I guess I could talk about this. If they all had this programming, wouldn't they have automatically kind of gone back to that? Yeah, but I think one of the other messages the is that well, the fallacy is actually, I think it's called the naturalistic fallacy, isn't it? That morals are outside nature. It's David Hume, oh. I think. So you can't derive mm-hmm. your ethics from circumstances. In other words, you you can't equate goodness with things identified as good, like pleasure, because there are pleasurable things that are bad for you, is the idea. But But in terms of the 
other aspect of this, it's the, the cognitive dissonance erodes any system and no conditioning can overcome it. Um, you know, the protagonist never really believed he was a murderer. He toyed with the idea, but the cognitive dissonance set up by the, the, the two competing uh, societies is, is, you know, no matter what the conditioning was, it is always overcome eventually. So you just can't have that, those opposing things without them overcoming any, any fantasy that you superimpose on top of it. One of the things that I was thinking of when Julie was talking there was, was that, uh, you know, that, that, starting, that starting point uh, is like original sin. It's uh, everyone is born on this planet, uh, and it actually says, you know, he was born. Um, because he, you know, oh, yeah. he's like a newborn baby. He's born with this original sin. They tell him what his sin was, and he's like, "Well, I don't feel like a murderer. I don't feel like a <laughs> sinner. You know, I haven't done anything." Um, you don't look like a murderer. <laughs> <laughs> so they're, um, they're, yeah, but you're they're flawed. Saying, you know, we're we're flawed, <laughs> and, and so we just deal with deal with it as best we can. And um, it seemed like there was a lot of people. Uh, on that planet, uh, when we meet them, that we're following the form because you know that was what was done, rather than yeah, you know, you're right. I really am a hardened criminal, and I, I'm reveling in this horrible place. Mm-hmm. It's oh, it's it's uh, what's it? Landing day. Oh, let's go kill some people. <laughs> the thing to do. Yeah, yeah. and th- and that's the social constructionism that I was talking hmm. about that, that reality is not objective that it's that it's built through social interactions and cultural bias and historical conditions so you adapt to omega or earth depending on wherever you are right it's not everyone who commits a crime who is a criminal uh at least not a career criminal uh you know career criminals are like super villains and psychopaths Mm-mm. and this you know, they were trying to make psychopaths out of people there. Well, I, I, I like the revelation. Uh, we're going to uh, ruin this book for anyone who, <laughs> who hasn't previously. But um, as we get closer to the end, I was I was very shocked when we got to Earth. I thought, oh, wow, I didn't see this coming. <laughs> I um, agree. And the longer we went into it, I, I really liked the sequence at the end where he's he's running around trying to find out how this society works. And he's polling people, and he finally stumbles upon the chief of the secret police, and he's very happy to answer the questions that have been bothering him. Um, but it, it, the, the idea is that all the people there are criminals. Um, they're choosing, really, to go to Omega, right? They're the, the people who won't be conforming, either because they're uh, naturally criminal but if you remember the list of the kinds of people who are sent there, it's it's not just you know murderers and and forgers. It's people who don't conform uh, to the social ideals. Right. Like one of the other men polled is, you know, I'm probably going to get sent to Omega for thinking these thoughts. But what the hell? Right. Well, yeah, thought, I want to be yeah, you, able to build something. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> uh, you can have thought crimes. That's on right. Omega. And, and but the thing I loved about it is when you pass beyond the law. The people believe you are bound to the dark one when, in reality, you become a member of the thought criminals. Right. Um, and uh, that also reminded me of, uh, of another book that I, I've done a review of, and I'll, I'll look that up while someone else talks. 
well, I was going to say the thing I liked about the end is that what the uh, programmers did not foresee because they couldn't is that you could align yourself socially to a different group and want their good more than the good of the larger group. You know, so he mm-hmm. he uh, he identified with the people trying to leave Omega so much more. He was able to fight off his conditioning. I I like the self confession as well. I thought that that twist was. Uh, I mean, uh, everything that yeah, Scott said, everything that Scott said is is right. It's just it didn't bother me. You know, there are lots of loose ends. It's full of loose ends, but. I was so entertained along the way, and I thought, well, you know, yeah, this could, each, each of these in, individual ideas could be developed into a much longer novel, but uh, I'm not sure they needed to be. Yeah, and I normally I, I enjoy, mind, but... I, I enjoy Robert Sheckley quite a bit, um, um, but, you know, and, and it's a testament to him that I, you know, I read the entire thing. You know, I say they bothered me, but they didn't bother me enough to stop. And uh-huh. then the last, what was it, maybe quarter of the book you know, takes place on Earth. It was almost like a different book. Um, but I, I enjoyed make- the end probably more than I enjoyed the beginning. I like the softness of it, that it did, that there was a whole lot of violence at the beginning of the thing. Um, but when he gets to Earth, you'd expect there to be, you know, he sort of set you up to think there was going to be an even bigger thing, a, a control going on there. And it just sort of, yeah, soften you all up in enemy territory and in fact it's like it's easy as pie he's worried for nothing yeah, yeah. it did so, prove that it did prove that old earth had a really really good pr system very good <laughs> so how many people thought the status civilization of the title was the prison planet omega me we it. yeah did, i think yeah. every i think that's a natural you know you don't expect it to go to earth and Especially since you don't get there till three quarters through the book. Um, I guess uh, the the name change in the uh, the original serialization in Amazing versus the the novelization um, that name change <laughs> is you know the first half of the book and the second half of the book really. Yeah. What was it? Oh, it's Omega. It's just oh, okay, Omega. okay. Uh, yeah, there the original. Seven- there were several sources I saw that said that this was um, Sheckley's best novel and better structured and actually made more sense than some of the others. Hmm. He, was definitely, he was definitely known as a short story writer and kind of not as a novelist. And this, this, well, this book yeah, this, never came out as like you know a big book. It was not reviewed very often. I, I checked to see if I had some contemporary reviews when it came out, but I don't. But... You know, it wasn't highly regarded. It was reprinted a lot, like a lot of books were from the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. Well, Sheckley was, did a lot of short stories in the 50s, and he was really well known for that because they were really good stories and they were funny. Um, my favorite one is Still Skulking Permit. But then he went into writing novels, I think, probably because he could make more money in the 60s. And it doesn't appear that he was quite as successful as that at novels as he was at the short stories. Yeah, people sometimes are better at one thing than the other. And I I do admit to liking his short stories quite a lot. But I, I quite enjoyed this book. I'm not sure it's going to be on my list of, uh, you know, top ten things to recommend to <laughs> new science fiction people. But it, it is 
it fits into the the pulpy, interesting, fast uh, idea SF that I look I look for. The but sort of book like, you go ahead. I was gonna say the sort of book you would give to a prison library when you're <laughs> getting rid of your book. <laughs> well, or or a young kid who likes science fiction. You know, I mean, I'm sorry, but but um, I was going to say this: the short story thing, since I really have never read any Sheckley that I can think of, uh, explains a lot as to why the second half of the book feels different. It's like he had this idea, but he really developed it in two short stories. And um, because the second half really made me think of that James Gunn thing that I read. Now I can't remember the name and I should. For you guys, because I did it for SFF Audio, but it was all psychological. Right. You guys know. Come on, help me out. Oh, well. No. It was a great story. Um, you know, oh, you mean the um, uh, Breaking Point? Thank you. Oh, okay. yes. Oh, gosh. Yes. Scott, you did a review <laughs> of it. I know it. Yes. <laughs> I know, and I appreciated it <laughs> very much. But, um, yeah, it made me think of that. I suddenly went, oh, now we're back in that time period's interest in psychology and society and what does it do to you versus the other person and everything else so and he was the fresh look of course but that's to me it was like two short stories so and it really was a the book was a child of its time because there was yeah i mean there was a lot (laughs) yes i liked it (laughs) yeah Yeah, but but there were a lot of books that were like that, and there were wonderful little – even in this book, there are wonderful little places where – I mean, there were no computers in it. Uh, Oh, yeah. There there was a whole lot of technology that just did not – There was sort of robots. Yeah. Yeah. And they did have computers. They just didn't focus on it, right? Yes. uh, There was lots of automated programs about the the, the, – we we got that in the later interviews, you know, that – the computers can can run on autopilot um, and usually do. Right. Uh, uh, I found a book that I, I was reminded of, and the, it's called This Perfect Day by Ira Levin. Um, it's a short novel from I, the 60s, I think. Um, let me just read you the description here. Uh, the story is set in a seemingly perfect global society. Uniformity is the defining feature. There is only one language, and all ethnic groups have been eugenically merged into one race called the family. The world is ruled by a central computer called Unicomp that has been programmed to keep every single human on the surface of the Earth in check. People are continually drugged by means of regular injections so that they can never realize their potential as human beings, but will remain satisfied and cooperative. They are told where to live, when to eat, whom to marry, when to reproduce, even basic facts of nature are subject to Unicomp's will. Men do not grow facial hair, and women do not develop breasts, and it only rains at night. I have read it. It's a very good book. Um, but the um, the idea is, you know, it's a dystopia, utopia. All u- utopias are really dystopias, and all dystopias are <laughs> always a certain kind of utopia as well, if, if you're a libertarian anyways. <laughs> um, <laughs> the... Um, the uh, the main character rebels against the um, the society he lives in, of course, as all utopias really do, unless it's somebody coming from the outside. Um, and uh, when he does so, he finds like our character in in uh, uh, Barrett in the status civilization that you know rebellion is expected and accepted. 
Um, I, I thought that that was a, a fun part when he, you know, he passes beyond the law, right? Uh, when he he becomes so evil that he becomes good, right? Uh, when he's winning those gladiatorial games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then he passes uh, back to Earth on a mission of good um, and finds it's a, a very benign evil uh, there. I, I think that it's a it's it's got a, a lot of fun ideas, both books. Yeah, I like yeah. the concept of a benign evil. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it, it. You know, if you remember when he takes over the poison or the antidote shop, whatever he's got, and he's uh, trying to learn about antidotes, that seemed to me a you know a symbol for the whole book, really mm-hmm. about about societal decisions, because he says it all boils down to what arsenic and strychnine, no matter how many fancy ass poisons he could dream up from you know frogs from South America and stuff like that, it still boils down to the easy left right yin yang. You know what I mean? It keeps going mm-hmm. back to the same thing, and. And so I think that, you know, Omega is arsenic and Earth is strychnine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good, good point. Have you ever, yeah, I was going to ask Greg about reading the novel. Did yeah. he find any special challenges or did you find it an easy read? Um, yeah, I, I found it a relatively easy read. I, I read most of these stories cold, so I don't know what's going to happen and I'm winging it. And if it's so anything that would make it particularly difficult from that point of view is the thing that that makes it difficult for me um so i mean it just sort of flowed pretty easily his prose style was was easy enough for me to be a couple of words ahead and realize what my next expression was going to have to be to get there so no i'd say on a you know i'd say it was easy to read relatively easy to read okay. compared compared to other much harder things that i've done now, when you say you do a cold read, have you read the story before you read it aloud? And record no, I, tur- I turn on the microphone, I pick up the wow. story, and I just start going. Boom. Pretty impressive, uh, isn't it? Uh, yeah, because I, how would you know? Wow. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just sitting <laughs> well, here thinking I have to know kind of what the person's like before I, I have a very limited selection of voices I do, but I have to have an idea, so... Well, it's it's being revealed to me as I read, so I'm just incorporating all of those contexts as I go. Do you vocalize all the excitements, like uh, you read the line and say, "Hey, that's cool," and then have to edit that. <laughs> and get sometimes, excited. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I have to go back because I got the emphasis wrong or something like that. But it's 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 not that often I catch myself pretty quickly, and it's just because I'm too damn lazy to actually read it first. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, mean, I'm, I, I I'm knew focused. there was a good reason. Oh, the, these recordings that I make for LibriVox are not my idea of rehearsed professionalism. In other words, if I were doing this well, for, yeah. for money, I'd use a much better microphone. I wouldn't do it in hotel rooms as I travel <laughs> around. Um, I, you know, I wouldn't let certain slurs get through in my voice. I, there's lots of things I'd go back and fix. But when it comes to free stuff, I figure pretty good is good enough. And uh, well, yeah, that's one of the best LibriVox narrators. So I can't imagine it'd be vast improvement to uh, to you know. I, I didn't hear any slurring of your voice. The yeah, angels would sing, Jesse. Come on. If he yeah. went back and fixed it, we would be carried to a height we could not stand. Okay. Well, I don't know. He's about being that. good I'm to like... us. But, well, because uh... I'll go through and read a book or a story ahead of time, but I won't go back and like if I'm reading two or three chapters, I won't reread the chapters. I just read them. So in that sense, but I always know where it's going. 
you know, is this person evil or German or, you know, something. Yeah. <laughs> I like to have They're clue. not mutually exclusive, you know. <laughs> well, no, I'm sorry. I'm reading The Riddle of the Sands and I was looking at it. Ah. So they're mostly German in that because that's where it is. So. Um, I'm perfectly happy in a state where I have no idea what's going to happen next. And uh, pretty much nine times out of ten, I, I have an instinctive idea of where we're going, even though it's not formed in my mind. And so I do my characterizations based on that and it keeps getting more focused as we go just as the story does you know they're trying to reveal those interestingly, things interestingly i think interestingly that's what we all do when we read a book in our head you know when we read the yeah. text we're, we're figuring out where the emphasis goes and everything so you're kind of experiencing the book as you read it exactly exactly that's so, different than reading out loud so but it puts me on oh, the same level with the listener the listener doesn't know where it's going any more than i do it helps right. to have a short, uh, a bad short-term memory because then you could read the whole thing and then go back and. <laughs> that, uh, well, I, that's kind of what I did. I, you know, I was reading a book that was nonfiction, and uh, uh, although it was a story about this guy sailing around the world, and you know, I would read the chapter and then I'd go back and start over reading it aloud, and there were I didn't remember that when I read it the first time. <laughs> well, that's true. Well, you, you I do also have that happen that, too. Yeah, you you pick up more stuff the second time you read it, and all. Yes. That. Sometimes yeah. when I listen to these recordings, I and I hear words that I just spoke 15 minutes ago, and I'm like, wow, I didn't get that. I do that too, or I'm just like, I wonder if anybody else is doing this, because clearly I was so bored or just p paying attention to something else when I was reading. I don't even remember that whole section. I'm like, oh, really? You're yeah. On, uh, automatic. Yeah. 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 I did it with an English accent, and I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the German sound doesn't sound too bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Rick, have you seen any sales uh, based, or do you not see a quarterly? Do you see a, a pickup because we decided to do this book as a read-along? Did you uh, see any yeah, I sales? Quit my, I quit my day job, <laughs> bought a new house. <laughs> Is that I love satire I hear? <laughs> How could you tell? Um, actually, I don't know because uh, I don't. I get a quarterly statement from Audible, okay. and I won't know for uh, probably about four months from now if there's okay. any uptick in sales or not. Well, maybe but, after uh, the podcast, people will start buying it in mass. Well, uh, Mark Douglas Nelson does the reading for it for, and from he's Wonder good. Audio. Yeah, he's he is, good. and he does really good job on this novel. I thought just exceptional, <laughs> and uh, it was kind of funny because. Mark had just started working with me, and I'm, like, scrambling. You know, I got a day job. You know how it is. Mm. And I'm like, okay, I got to have something for him to read. I'll have him do uh, – I'm looking on Gutenberg, and I'm like, oh, Sheckley's got a novel. I read this a long time ago, and it was good. So I'm like, do this one. And then when I got it back, I realized, hey, that's not the novel I read. Here <laughs> 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 so I, I am commissioning him to read this novel that I've never even read. And it's like, hey, well, at least it's a good one. He did a good job with it. It all it worked good, out. It is yeah. a good one. I think yeah, that's the one he actually um, he recorded the whole thing and we we're all ready to go on it. And a little while later, he's like, I'm re-recording some chapters that I'm not happy with. I'm like, OK. So I never just till this week, I've never actually listened to it in order with the revised versions put in. And it was like, wow, this is really a nice job. I think I might have done some proof listening on that a long time ago. But the thing is, is when I'm when you're looking for mistakes, you're not really following the plot. Uh, at right. least the, when I when I was doing that, I'm like, 
this novel's really unfamiliar to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's grammatically perfect, and there's no <laughs> blurring of voices, but it's it's uh, really unfamiliar. I, I quite enjoyed I quite enjoyed this book. Um, uh, Greg, if if people are looking for another reading uh, of something similar length, what what can they go to besides Death World on LibriVox that you've done? Uh, I did a Robert Block, uh, uh, Miscrowded Earth. Right. Um, okay. I've also done Death World Two, The Ethical Engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a. It's it's hard for me to remember. I've done you know I'm I'm pushing 170 or 175 <laughs> stories at this oh point. God. So, um, yeah, let me hear. It's it's I've done. 169 stories by 77 authors, 1,156,323 words <laughs> for a total duration of 115 hours, 5 minutes and 26 seconds as of this morning. <laughs> so it's kind of hard for me to, to remember. And a lot of these things go out of my mind very quickly. Like I said, I, I do a lot of these things on the road. I'm, uh, you know, I'm in hotel rooms uh, and I just pick a story and go with it depending on what my mood is. So, and in fact, my mood, you know, that's the hardest thing for me to deal with is, you know, suppose I work all day and deal with clients and stuff. And then I come back to this stupid hotel room and I'm going to record a story. It, it, the ability to relax myself to the point where I can do it properly is is the greatest struggle that I have. But, is there uh, uh, something you've worked on like just today or what's the most recent story you did? Uh, believe it or not, another Sheckley called Watchbird. Oh, uh, and then I did Second Variety by Phil Dick this week, which oh, is great. just doing I pretty I saw great. that come up. Yeah. And just before that was Tunnel Under the World by Fred Pohl. Oh, uh, those that's, are all that's, that's a novel, yeah. isn't it? Tunnel Under the World? No, no, no it's a short it's, story. Okay. It's a, it's a short story. And LibriVox, uh, Bologna Times over at LibriVox has started an X-1 project where we're reading stories that were adapted for X-1. Oh, great. Uh, mm-hmm. Tunnel Under the World was, was, I've been sitting around waiting for that sucker to come out. That's you know, one of, the, one of the stories at the top of my list that I wanted to do. I'd love to do uh, Gravy Planet, too, which is what mm-hmm. you guys think of as the space merchants. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Tunnel, un- Tunnel Under the World is on the uh, Mark Time Science Fiction Audio Hall of Fame, the oh, really? X-1 version. Cool. And Watchbird was done by Yuri Rosofsky in the 2000X series. Yeah, I remember that one. Well, I'm I'm planning to do more Sheckley. I'm getting around to it, but there's a bunch of Ray Galoon that I gotta get to, and there's some uh, oh God, my list is not. So we're not running out of of potential. <laughs> what you're saying? No, and I tend, like you, Jesse, to look for longer, short stories, and so you're going to see more and more stuff that's an hour and a half, two hours, that kind of thing. Um, so I go for the for the stories that are, you know, fifteen thousand words or less, pretty much. And uh, but but I will do novels if they pop up, like you know, when Death World popped up. I you know, how can you not do that? So, I mean, the day it appeared on Gutenberg is the day I put it up on LibriVox. So, I know. Are the sequels available yet? uh, Public domain, only the first one is. Just the first one? Yeah. And I've done The second one's my favorite. So, I was just wondering. Well, no, I did the second one, The Ethical. Oh, did you? I just didn't see it, I guess. Yeah, it's up there. If you. I did some nice art for it. Yeah. Sorry. you, you'll find it if you want to go to my blog. It's called Acoustic Pulp. You'll, if you search okay. for Acoustic Pulp on any or Greg Marguerite on any search engine other than Bing, it'll come up first. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but because it's uh, but because the best thing about Bing is how people pronounce it, really. <laughs> well, I find it. I, I'm almost insulted because it's a Google blog that I keep my catalog on uh, that they won't list it. They will not list it ever in, in any results. I have not even looked at Bing to see about my blogs. I have to look now. Any other search engine you go on, my my catalog comes up top of the list. You go on Bing, it doesn't come up at all. There's still 10 pages of links, but the <laughs> blog is nowhere in them. Jerry, I wanted to ask you, um, are, are we going to see uh, somebody do a audio drama version of some some modernly, currently, suddenly, public domain novel or short story. <laughs> I, I, I think that this is a really fantastic idea and that a lot of audio dramatists are not taking advantage of what's available on Gutenberg. Oh, that's to... definitely true. They're unfortunately going for the uh, older things that have a lot of uh, familiarity already. I can't tell you how deathly sick I am of Dracula Frankenstein. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, I've heard so many of those. Um, They're good books. They just don't need to be done the 80th Again time. and again and again, yes. And The War of the Worlds, unless you're doing a really good parody, that one's kind of tired, too. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think I, that, that was the best one of that. The best War of the Worlds was done by Seeing Your Theater. They did a uh, Orson and the Alien, I think it was called, and that was a you know a parody of the... Of the original radio drama, um, uh, that was the sci-fi radios. Yeah, version with, theater. Yeah, with <laughs> yes, with Delancey and. Um, uh, so what? I, what I, can I we would do love to to make people uh, do this because uh, you know I've got the I did this thing called the SFF Audio Challenge where I I make Julie re record audiobooks. <laughs> <laughs> Works like a charm, huh? It does. I mean, yeah. uh, uh, yes. Rick got Rick got gave us one, and that was that was done up almost right away. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I I would love to see more. I I frequently see a story or a book that I think would make a good drama. Mm -hmm. um, whether um, there are a lot of people doing fan fiction, there are a lot of people doing. Um, original things, which is what I really look the, forward to the most. Um, and there are a lot of people doing rather old uh, public domain. And there is very little being done as uh, taking a a good short story that is now public domain and making it into drama. And I, I'm not sure I know why that is. Um, maybe it's I mean, for me, uh, you guys have. There are now two versions of uh, the Status Civilization as audiobooks, and as mm -hmm. soon as I saw, I went and got my copy of the book and read it. Well, is there possible it, Great Northern is going to do a audio dramatization of of the Status Civilization? I think it would make an a, an amazing audio drama. Um, the chances of Great Northern doing something that we didn't write is probably small. Oh. Uh, we well, have but it still has to be adapted, right? Yes, yes. So that's, um, that's writing. <laughs> <laughs> Never say die. <laughs> you know, actually, as a, as a, a part of how I learned to write is by doing adaptations of things. Uh, um, 
there's a great Howard Waldrop story uh, that is a takeoff on the War of the Worlds, um, the Night of the Cooters, which I did an adaptation for, and we did it, you know, as, as a live at a convention, uh, and I thought that, that it worked really well as an adaptation, and Howard liked it. Hmm. Um, but you know, how many of those can you do before I personally I I look at those and say, oh, that would be really nice. I hope somebody does that. <laughs> and then I go and do something that I've been meaning to do for a long time uh, that's my own. <laughs> we got to uh, come up with some incentive, some incentive. to. Yes, that would be good. It. See, now there you have another SFF audio challenge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, I was talking. I was talking. Enthusiasm. With, um, yeah, I love it. Yeah. Is, uh, <laughs> we were talking with Jack Ward last week, and he, from the Sonic Society, and he was saying that audio drama is uh, the hardest thing you can do in podcasting, and I think that's about right. And believe it. You know, it seems to be like Julie can knock off an audio book in a couple of weeks. Or you know, if it's a novel, maybe a month or two, right? Uh, two or three, yeah. two or three novels in a day, apparently. <laughs> That's the speed he's going. Yeah. Uh, but audio drama as a as a challenge would be, you know, it have to be a pretty amazing prize. And how are you going to spread it out amongst all those actors? And uh, it just seems um, an incredible amount of work. It's you know, not difficult to find actors who are willing to do that kind of work without um, pay. Um, because there is so little of it around <laughs> um, to do as as a radio theater, um, it's getting somebody to adapt it and somebody to produce it. And I always like to work with all the actors in the same room, working off each other, rather than getting uh, you know doing the whole internet uh, audition and recording scheme, mm-hmm. yeah. which makes it. You know, that, that adds a, a layer of difficulty to it. Although it shortens the time uh, involved. Yeah, and I would imagine it. Yeah, but it would increase the creativity greatly, I think, to have the actors there with each other. Oh, yes, it definitely does. Yeah. My partner, Brian Price, doesn't like to work any other way. He's the director of the, the actors. I'm the tech guy, and he's the director. And, uh, ah, okay. And, so he really likes to have the actors there. Uh, he keeps thinking we're co- we're working on a piece where he's thinking he has to come up here or listen to the auditions and the recording by phone from Indianapolis because it's so far away. And I'm thinking, well, why don't I just go down there and you get a bunch of actors and we'll do it there rather than here. But we have better actors here. <laughs> Uh, we're cl- we're closing in on our hour here. I think Julie's going to have to leave soon, but I want to um, I want to get any last thoughts on Omega slash uh, the status civilization. I- I've and, got a, uh, probably an interesting way to close this. Um, sure, I've got a, a magazine of fantasy and science fiction from December 1960, and uh, Alfred Bester reviewed the novel, and oh. uh, it's it's negative, but why it's negative is interesting. <laughs> Okay. It's, it, we haven't. Dis- it, it seems to be the style of book it is. So it's only two paragraphs. I'll just read it. Right. Gloom has settled upon us. After the glowing notice we gave Robert Sheckley's collection of short stories last month, we are now forced to report that his novel, The Status Civilization, controverse everything we said about his sparkling craftsmanship. Ouch. <laughs> this is a what-would-happen-if novel. 
What would happen if is a mechanical development of a story out of deliberately reversed values, usually only practiced by second-rate writers? Ooh. What would happen if men gave birth to children instead of women? What would happen if people grew younger instead of older? What would happen if you name it? Mr. Sheckley's reversal is the planet Omega, which is one vast criminal colony where lawlessness is legal and required and virtue is illegal and despicable. His protagonist, Will Barrett, rises rapidly in this upside-down society through accidental crimes and outlaw adventures, meanwhile preserving a tatty sort of innocence. The book is hastily and maldroitly written and bears no relationship whatever to the interesting title and the blurb on the cover. For shame, Mr. Sheckley, you can do much, much better. Wow. Yeah, that's, what that's, a slam. that's rough. Man. But what's interesting cool. to me about it is he seems to be saying this is a subject matter that's not worth anybody's time because he's saying this is a what-would-happen-if novel. Mm -hmm. And yep. uh, what other kind of science fiction novel is there? <laughs> that's well, what I was thinking. Yeah, me too. This is a review by Alfred Bester, right? Alfred Bester, right. Very nice tying off. But uh, before before I get into that, I just want to throw in one little uh, thing I looked up because it bothered me. Um, anybody notice the name of the city on Omega? Tetrahyde. Tetrahyde. What's it? What's that a reference to? I, I don't know. Tetrahydrocannabal, <laughs> THC, oh, oh, active oh, oh, ingredient oh. in marijuana. Oh. Oh. Ah. Nice. Ah, Rebus Canibus rears his head. <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> no, I'm amazed I didn't catch that. I I had to look it up because I thought this is something familiar. <laughs> I meant to just because I thought that's chemistry. That must mean something, and then I forgot yeah, about it. It has to mean something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Are we so, recommending that our uh, readers of this uh, smoke before they uh, read it? Or we'll have it? to see how that California <laughs> law plays out. And see. But uh, uh, it's also nice that Scott brings up um, Mr. Bester, because Mr. Bester is going to be subject to an upcoming review of ours as well planning on doing a read-along on The Star's My Destination. Oh, he's so good. Oh, boy. Uh, this is for early Rachel. July. It should be it should be very good. And um, he apparently based that novel on uh, The Count of Monte Cristo, which I have not read in its full oh. length. But um, I can see it. You know, I can see... Yeah. I can see that. And there's an amazing, amazing, amazing de uh, audio drama version done by the BBC in uh, 1993, um, that I highly recommend everybody go out and download. Um, uh, BBC of, Radio of 4. Of The Count of Monte Cristo or no, The Star of the Destination? No, of My Destination. I'm sorry. Okay. Sorry, I'm writing, I'm writing all this down because The Count of Monte Cristo is one of my daughter's favorite books. She's always trying to get me to read it, and I'm like, okay, time to read it. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Um, so, it's only fifteen hundred pages if you get the new. Uh, yeah, that's that's what I'm <laughs> afraid of. Yeah, it's new translation. Incredibly, incredibly, it is worth it though. If Great Northern it's... could slap together an audio drama, <laughs> <laughs> bridge, please. But the think of all the actors—they couldn't fit in those studios. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to derail it. I just was thinking. Oh, I don't know if I get to do the read along, but I but now I have to read the Count of Monte Cristo first. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're interested, start putting in your applications now. Well, bribes are accepted. <laughs> and Scott, you've got a couple of uh, you just you got a couple of um, 
reviews of Alfred Bester, uh, his book, right? A couple of reviews of... of Didn't what? you get um, uh, some magazines with the reviews of... No, no, that, that was re- with reviews of Status Civilization. Oh, I'm that sorry, was where was the other one? Well, the other one was Fred Pohl, and it's kind of lengthy. And it's it's not um, positive either, except for he he says that um, he calls the second half of the book, um, I think the word he used was brilliant. Oh. Yeah, let me... I've got uh-huh. it here. The, this one is January 1961, um, Worlds of If. Mm-hmm. And give me just a second here. Page hey, um, I wanted to mention something that uh, Greg wrote about in one of the postings on SFF Audio about not, to, not wishing to compete with the commercial version of Status Civilization. Mm-hmm. So why'd you do it? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I was going to say, can, I can hear I have no problem with the free versions coming out of you know public domain material, and I don't think they really do compete or hurt sales in any way. I think the best-selling title that Wonder Audio has is uh, Starborn, and there's been a LibriVox version of that forever, too. So I actually have no problem. I think it's wonderful. Great. Good. I, I don't know if I would have come on it myself. Jesse and I, in background conversation, Jesse's been influencing me in trying to... <laughs> pushed me in certain directions to read certain things, and that was one of the directions he shoved me in. So, Okay, I found that spot, um, Fred Pohl. So uh, uh, the, the review sums up. So again, this is Frederick Pohl. Um, the book seems, all in all, to add up to a long series of false starts climaxed by an excellent novelette, which is more or less irrelevant to what has gone before. That, yeah, that's wow. you know, I understand these these responses because if you think about it, the the protagonist smashes his own reflection but remains in Plato's cave. Mm. Do you know what I mean? That's why true. I when Very I was saying true. the ending is unsatisfactory. I agree. The ending is is not not perfect, but um, it's funny. I, I I listened to the beginning again, and it actually is parallel, right? Yeah, um, it goes through evolution at the beginning, and yeah, yeah. Well, he's got he's you know he has a vision of himself killing a man and uh it's 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 kind of very similar to the you know i guess we we get the foreshadowing with the what's it, it was scribing is that is that how it's pronounced the uh tele, telepathy or uh, uh screnning oh, predest- yeah. precognition mm-hmm. or whatever it is yeah. um screnning was screnning that's it yeah. Yeah. yeah i i had but i thought that, you know this is sort of an element that didn't really need to be in the book i thought oh John W. Campbell made him put him it put it in there. <laughs> it's an amazing book, so apparently uh, it, it was not John W. Campbell who's responsible. Did anybody look up Screnning? <laughs> no. <laughs> How do you spell that? S C. It had something to do with the bong. <laughs> <laughs> mm. That's the mean? water she was looking into, right? Mm. Bong uh, water. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Oddly, if you look up if you Google Screnning, all it mentions is Robert Sheckley and the Status Civilization. How do you spell Screnning? S K R E N N I N G. It starts. Oh, but, it start, but that's start, like to scry, S C R Y, which is to foretell, I believe, isn't it? Ah, okay. uh, it so just kind of came to me. There is a sure. reference for it. Hmm. If you scry something, you're foretelling it like that. So maybe he just kind of played off of that yeah, and went that on. Sounds like it. Very good, Julie. 
Thank you. <laughs> I feel my day is gone good now. Uh, did you uh, say S K R S K Y R? S C R Y. Okay. Okay. Isn't it? S K Y R is an Icelandic cultured dairy product. <laughs> yes, it's, it's. I believe I it's fermented. Iceland. Yeah. It's kind of like a yogurt kind of drink, I think. Sure. Yum. Isn't that sad that I might know that? But there you go. How does it taste, though? <laughs> I don't know, but um, I don't want to make any, so. <laughs> can have Making to me there. hungry, though. It's <laughs> another one called Sermjolk. S U R L J O L K. I have been making well, very old style stuff, but not dairy products. So you will have this in the show notes, right, Jesse? <laughs> very <laughs> yeah. The dairy products. Yes. The recipes for it. Yes. Well, Julie's going to provide that info, right? Oh uh, yeah, of course. Let me just go check a couple of books. <laughs> <laughs> you laugh. I have books that probably have those recipes in them. Oh, weird. Scary. <laughs> Icelandic recipes. I, I'm telling you, I bet I do. We don't have we time do a, to go look. Can we do an audio drama of it? <laughs> <laughs> it's slow and requires a lot of skimming, I think. <laughs> oh, but what's the sound of skimming? Ooh, well, that's up to you, I guess, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you got a Foley guy over there? You can whip one up. I'm sure it's, yeah, there must be a standard for it somewhere at CBS. I'll ask my daughter. She's got access to a, a library, an audio library at her college where she's doing film stuff. So we'll see. Can you substitute fireplace crackling for that noise or what? <laughs> if it's real fireplace crackling and not uh, cellophane, yes. Yeah, well, she actually had to use that for cellophane one time, so um, or something like that. I was like, "How'd you get that?" Oh, bubbles popping. That you know, a- s- somebody has used cellophane recently. Well, recently, like within the last fifteen years, um, to to and they didn't realize that modern microphones pick up things a lot better than old ones do. And so it sounds like somebody's sitting there with cellophane. <laughs> yeah. you, can, you, know, you have to be listening in your car with road noise in order to not get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Someone's on hey, fire. Someone's on fire, yeah. <laughs> or tearing a piece of paper up. I'm not sure which. <laughs> Their sounds are so similar. <laughs> I think we're back to Fireside Theater. Don't they have a, a pull your mic wow. out of the cellophane line? Just like Before the status start. civilization. Yeah. It's full circle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.